The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sojic, and I believe Jeff Cutmore. These are your headlines. China's manufacturing activity accelerates at its fastest rate in three years, rising for the ninth straight month, while services PMI hits an eight-year high. The Trump administration reportedly preparing to blacklist the Chinese chipmaker SMIC as well as an energy group, whilst the House of Representatives looks to vote on tightening rules for Chinese firms listing in the U.S. Black Friday sales surged 22% to $9 billion in the second largest online spending day in U.S. history, while data shows in-store traffic plunges over 50%. S&P Global has reportedly put $44 billion on the table to buy London-based IHS Market in a tie-up that would create a data giant and mark the largest deal of the year. So have you ever done any acting, Karen? A little bit here and there. Yeah, so do you know stage left, stage right? Yes. Because right. I haven't got a clue. Because the that's director. That's different to hear, isn't it? Sorry? That's different to hear, though, isn't it? I don't think it is, because wall left, wall right, and I will go to my grave after a 50-year career at CNBC, not knowing which side of the wall they want me on. I don't think the viewer knows what we're talking about. There's wall, a there's wall left, wall right. There's a production queue that none of us as anchors ever understand. I know, but I just want to let them in for something. Do, but uh, none of us ever do, so we're sort of crisscrossing behind well, exactly. the scenes. Exactly. No idea what's going on. How are you? Have you had a good <laughs> nice weekend? You, yes. Did you shop? Of course I did. I didn't know which packages were arriving at one point. There's this one for me. Am I putting this one away? Which one's this one? I know there was a lot of that going on as well. Really? I mean, to be honest, I assume most things coming in are for Mrs. S as well. But yes. uh, no, yeah, they came in addressed to Mrs. S, but they're probably for Mr. S. I doubt it very much indeed. <laughs> I very much doubt that as well. But she did get a special present. Which was? Something she's been dreaming of for a long time. It's Not her birthday even... this week. Right. She's had it already. Cordless right. Hoover. Oh. <laughs> Cordless vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I only mentioned it because of Black Friday as well, but I probably should get on to... Uh... That means more time for you because you'll be zipping through those... Oh, no, no, I love it. It's got headlights on it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And it goes on to... The... Anyway. Uh, right, China has extended its economic rebound with new PMI data hitting multi-year highs. November factory activity rose to 52.1, whilst output in the key services sector was at its best in eight years. Karen, the markets. Well, we've seen a stunning reaction across markets in the month of November. And, uh, of course, what we've got on uh, day one of uh, a brand-new trading week, just a bit of caution. Chinese market is an exception on the back of some data, but you can see from Japan we've got a peel back of 200-plus points to the downside, selling of 300-odd points coming off the Hang Seng, and we're down 83 points currently on the S&P in Australia. So the markets, as you can see, just delicately poised at a morning session. But let's uh, dig into this Chinese data and get out to Sam for a little bit more on what's moving that Chinese market. Sam, good morning. 
Good morning to you, Karen and Steve. Yeah, well, this was largely driven uh, by domestic and overseas demand, and economists have certainly suggested uh, that perhaps this now reduces the likelihood of more monetary easing moving forward. We certainly have heard from the Chinese central bank saying that it will take a more flexible and targeted approach, as a lot of the data that we have been seeing is pointing to a strong economic rebound. But if you look beyond that headline number, if we look under the hood, we saw those new orders rise, suggesting that things are holding up pretty nicely domestically as we have seen that uh, boost in infrastructure spending uh, by the government. Uh, But it was also a good month for those new export orders. So external uh, demand really backing those numbers. But uh, of course, a resurgence in cases globally may create some uncertainties for some of these Chinese factories moving forward if we do see some of those lockdowns. But uh, this was the ninth straight month of growth and came in higher than expectations. And certainly the industrial sector has been largely supporting this economic recovery so far and has been uh, steadily returning to these sort of pre-pandemic uh, levels. And of course, we heard from Li Keqiang uh, last week saying that he was confident that China's economy would achieve positive growth uh, this year based on a lot of this data that we have seen. And so with these figures in mind that we got today, economists have certainly pointed uh, to the high possibility now of China's uh, GDP growth returning uh, to above five and a half percent year on year for the fourth quarter. Uh, so China's official services PMI also rising to 56.4, expanding for a ninth month as well, uh, the fastest pace uh, since June 2011, 2012 rather, and uh, certainly uh, that has been uh, lagging the recovery more so than the manufacturing side of things. But we are seeing things on that side picking up now with uh, a pickup in consumption over in China, guys. Back to you. It's a brilliant place to leave the question I have for you, Sam. Just a very quick question. If things are going so well domestically, and if there is, I think your final words were, a pickup in consumption, why has the Chinese central bank offered to salve jittery markets with surprise MLF injection? That is the copy I'm reading for Reuters now. If things are looking so solid, why are we getting extra MLF injections? Yeah, well, see, that's a really good question. And uh, that is largely to do with from what I've been reading and certainly what we've been covering over the last uh, few weeks is uh, some of these concerns about these recent bond defaults by some of uh, China's larger sort of state-owned enterprises. We have seen uh, a number of companies like Yongcheng Coal and Electricity and also Huachan Motor Group, which is the parent uh, company of BMW's Chinese partner, uh, defaulting on some of their bonds lately. And that has been raising some concerns about China's corporate bond market and really raising some fears now about a potential credit crisis over in the mainland. Now, some economists have said that they don't see a credit crisis brewing in China, but they certainly do think uh, that credit conditions have tightened. Uh, And it does seem that, you know, the PBOC uh, is very much trying to ease some of these nerves now in the market, which we have actually seen uh, spill into over to the stock market as well, denting sentiment over there. So I say uh, that that would be uh, a move that we have likely seen as a result of that. Uh, But we have seen that in the past and and it actually hasn't worked. So it'll be interesting to see if we do see those rates come down. Guys? Sam, let me uh, jump uh, jump in and pick up then. Uh, Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. And good to see you all this morning. Apologies for not making the headlines, but a little bit of a sleepy Wi-Fi system this morning. Anyhow, let's pick up on the uh, latest Chinese data and some of those comments around the state of the economy. Uh, And let's just focus on uh, President Trump and how he's currently rolling forward with these issues on Chinese companies. Uh, A couple of new companies in the frame here. The Trump administration is 
reportedly now talking about blacklisting China's top chip maker, SMIC, alongside a national oil major. Washington will restrict access to U.S. investors and customers by adding the two companies to its list of firms owned or controlled by the Chinese military. This according to Reuters. So the semiconductor maker SMIC denying it has ties to the PLA and says it will continue to work, quote, constructively and openly with U.S. authorities. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives uh, will vote this week on whether to force Chinese companies listed in the U.S. to comply with new auditing rules or risk being delisted. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. They have the report on this. Uh, It passed the new law, or rather, if passed, that new law would see companies such as Alibaba and JD.com be subject to annual audits reviewed by U.S. regulators. Earlier this year, the Nasdaq tightened its rules for Chinese companies looking to IPO in the United States. All right, Jeff, I'll pick up there. When he, when he started talking, Karen, I thought he was going to, he said sleepy wife. I thought, what are you talking about sleepy wife? What, does she make him a cup of coffee before he gets up? But he means sleepy Wi-Fi, so that's what he said, isn't it? Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm glad your Wi-Fi is back up and running. Uh, <laughs> Let's have a look at the US market. I mean, look look at that on Friday. I mean, it's a, it's a limited session. I mean, who was trading stocks on Friday? Yeah, okay, some of you were. All right. Um, but, but in fact, the matter is the Dow is up 0.13 of 1%. Uh, the Nasdaq had a really good rally again. It was almost like clockwork. Retail surge, blah, blah, blah. Uh, technology surge uh, on retail purchases. Hence, uh, the Nasdaq had a nine-tenths of 1% rally as well. I have asked them to put the Russell 2K in as well, and we're going to do these figures in a lot more detail later on. But safe to say, the Russell 2K last week put on 4%, which again is pretty much double uh, what the S&P put on. It put on on the month. Do you know the number? What should I tell you? I'll tell you. 20.6%. 20 point, you made a fifth of the value of the, S&P, uh, the Russell 2K mid-caps in one month. I think it's extraordinary. I mean, we've got another day today. It could all go wrong, but maybe not. Uh, Right, and US futures. Let's have a quick look at those and where they are uh, currently trading. US futures are trading down for the Dow, 221 points, the NASDAQ 31, and the S&P down as well. And, of course, uh, I was asking you about shopping. So you did a a fair amount then. Seriously, I was losing track of packages as they were arriving. I had that much holiday shopping. I didn't buy anything for myself, just to clarify. So I had a row with a well-known delivery company on, uh, on Friday evening. Right. I'd settled in, finally opened the, uh, the Shiraz, you know, and about 8.30, there's a knock at the door uh, from a lovely gentleman, a European gentleman. Uh, I can't get out of your drive. Um, he'd basically gone over my verge into the mud, well, actually into the grass, and had turned it into a quagmire with his van. So you had to give him a bit of a helping hand out the door, out the driveway? It was a, a sequence of events which didn't go particularly well for my uh, uh, cross-channel relationships with certain European nations. No, it was it was a tough time. I literally just sat down, half eight on a Friday evening, glass of wine in hand, you know, we and he's churning up my carefully cultured lawn. <laughs> Shall we talk more broadly about It was a Black Friday for me, I can assure <laughs> yeah, you. And like it was it. a blacker Friday for that <laughs> lovely gentleman. I, by the end of it, my wife's been come on, it's not his fault. I'm like, yeah, go on. God, we haven't even made it through Cyber Monday yet. <laughs> Black Friday sales surged 22% compared to 2019. Adobe Analytics data shows US consumers spent over $9 billion on the day. 
In-store traffic fell 52% on Friday, according to Sensomatic Solutions, as virus measures forced more people to shop from home. Adobe said it was the second biggest online spending day in American history, just behind last year's Cyber Monday event. So the question is, what happens this year, whether it's all pulled forward and all the lines blur between Cyber Monday and Black Friday, given all the purchases or bulk of purchases were happening online. Just a couple more stats. A lot of the transactions were happening on mobile phones, and I wonder whether that was just ease of use or whether in some cases it's kind of easier to transact. A lot of people have Apple Pay now on their phone as well. It's just easier to, to push forward with a transaction if you do it on a mobile phone, even if it's not as easy to view yeah. the products. I'll just very briefly come in. Jeff's got far more interesting things to say than I have on this. But safe to say Black Friday is what it says on the tin. It is the day when companies go into the black on the year on their retailers, which shows what an important season holiday is. But I've noticed more and more retailers, Jeff, are desperately trying to hold the line, not doing Black Friday promotions. I saw one big supermarket saying we're trying to get all year round good prices and compete on a daily basis. But of course, we know that this is game of roulette or, 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 or Russian roulette between the consumer and the retailers. Retailers try to stay as near to full price as they can throughout holiday season. Black Friday is, is a horrible innovation for European retailers because it brings forward those sales, which as we all know, back in the day would start on Boxing Day, would start on New Year's Day. But unfortunately now they're starting right at the start of what is a key period, especially this year, Jeff. No, I think that I think that's a fascinating point, Steve. And um, you know that poor chap who ended up in your moat uh, over the weekend. I mean, let, let's face it, he wouldn't have been coming from Marks and Spencers or Next because they were just a couple of the retailers here in the UK who decided not to participate in the Black Friday deals. And I know Next has already gone on the record and said that in terms of the current run rate on sales, they're about half of where they were in 2019. So that tells you an awful lot of about the pain that's being felt by uh, those companies that have both bricks and mortar stores and operate through the online channel. And Next clearly feels that it doesn't need to discount any further at this point, given how much pain they've already taken as a result of COVID. So I think the individual um, retailing strategies are very interesting at this point, but it does seem to be a bit of a scattergun approach with different companies trying to take a different line on this Black Friday just to try and hang on to as much of the margin and as much of the profit that they can at this stage. And you have to say, you know, given um, some of the uh, talk that we're hearing about um, another ma major retailer here in the UK potentially being in trouble, it's perhaps no surprise that they want to hang on to as much of the customer's cash as they can at this stage. So it'll be interesting to see what the Black Friday numbers uh, look like in aggregate here in the UK, because um, having looked at that number in the United States, it is clear that they are ahead of the run rate uh, for last year, but it is towards the lower end of expectations, I think, Karen, as you were pointing out. Yeah, I think you raised some good points around what the retailers have been up to. And if you've missed out on the spending during this promotional period, have you just missed out on that cash from shoppers? It feels like it's a limited pile of money to spend at this point. If you look at the top ticket items that people are buying, to me, it looked like a lot of Christmas presents, you know, the toys. People are not just randomly buying toys to reward the children. Typically, they are putting them away for major events. So it looks like it was a bit of a pull forward. The other big trend that we witnessed was perhaps a little bit of an Amazon backlash. There was a real mindset by the consumer to try and spend 
same with some of the smaller retailers. Even though the larger ones did better, the gap between large and small actually closed during this window. So it felt as though retailers themselves have, might have had to pivot towards online a little bit more aggressively. So have the offerings this year where they haven't in the past. But I think, too, the consumer has been very mindful that it's been a, a challenging crisis for a lot of players, particularly the small ones. And they want to go out there and support those retailers if they can. So you saw that in some of the Black Friday numbers. It's interesting, uh, just to wrap up on this, um, Goldman Sachs out with a note um, pointing out um, ways in which the K can be turned into a V in terms of the opportunity for some of these companies that are very consumer sensitive, very consumer cyclical. And Goldman Sachs, of course, making the point, which I think we all understand, that we need a few things to fall into place early next year. One, that the uh, Biden administration moves forward with stimulus, uh, a new fiscal package as quickly as possible. And two, obviously, that the vaccine program falls into place perfectly as well at this stage. And that is how your K for some of these cyclicals becomes a V-shaped recovery. At least that's the Goldman Sachs pitch. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about the challenges for the financials in 2021. Clifford Abrams will join us. Uh, We will get into a conversation with the uh, CFO of ABN AMRO as they anticipate more loan impairments next year. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. I wish I'd done this earlier, but we're in household. Oh, that's right, 2003. Yeah, 2003, HSBC bought household. And I'll just remind your viewers of that a little bit later on the show as well, because shares in HSBC are trading lower after the Financial Times reported the bank is considering a complete exit from, yeah, retail banking in the United States. 17 years that's been in the making. The British lender hopes the move will help boost its struggling North American business. The paper added that the bank's senior management will present the plan to the board in coming weeks. HSBC declined to comment on the report. Jeffrey, I know you're getting to our next guest, but you and I both remember pouring over that deal in 2003. Oh, well, how quickly it unwound. Yeah, I think when we looked at it at the time, we couldn't quite understand how the numbers added up. And yet the management was so convinced that it was the right time for that deal. And yet, as you recall, it was incredibly frothy at that moment. Uh, and it did feel like there was a bit of a land grab going on to try and get access to uh, consumer and the consumer debt market in the United States. How times have changed, as you point out. Well, let's let's move on and, and let's talk about another uh, financial uh, group, ABN AMRO. They say they'll consider paying out the 2019 dividend at the end of 2020, depending on the ECB's recommendation at that time. The Dutch lender also targeting an ROE of 8% for 2024. We're pleased to have with us uh, Clifford A. 
Abrams, once again, the ABN AMRO uh, CFO. And Clifford, you'll be pleased, no doubt, that uh, Barclays have put you on their 2021 Outlook overweight list. They anticipate uh, around 50% upside for your earnings per share in 2021. Does that seem achievable to you? Well, we've set out today our strategic update. So we're giving targets and strategy for the medium term, and we're targeting 8% returns in 2024, as you mentioned. I think in the intervening years, we expect to recover because the economy is still tough. Interest rates are low. So I think it will be a gradual recovery through 2024. I hate to hark on about another bank's um, outlook uh, view on you. But I mean, one of the arguments they make for a, for a, a, a better 2021 is largely this one around pent up demand being released by um, a vaccine that is comprehensive and successful in Western countries. As you look at your up- updated numbers here in this release today, how key is it that that pent-up demand does unfold through the early part of next year? Well, we've based our outlook on quite cautious economic forecasts. Uh, I think we all expected a vaccine would come through next year. Uh, It it will be helpful to our clients, our corporate clients and our retail clients, because we're seeing a demand for loans today really quite muted. Uh, People are cautious, both uh, consumers and corporates. So I think as the vaccine, if and when it gets rolled out, it should improve confidence and you'll see increasing demand uh, for loans, which will support our income line. I think we need to balance that against the very low interest rate environment. Uh, and for the, over the last few years, and in particular since the pandemic started, we've seen very low rates and low rates aren't good for banks. So that will hold back our earnings. So you'll see the balance of those two factors. Uh, but banks, as you know, are economically sensitive. We've been hit on the downside. And if there's a good recovery, we should benefit on the upside. Clifford, can I ask you about the dividend? We're all watching those announcements very closely and you've made a comment today that payout of the accrued four-year 2019 dividend will be considered prudently at the four-year 2020. Just give us a sense of some of the thinking behind the scenes about that payout to shareholders. Well, today is our strategic update. We made that statement also at our Q3 results a few weeks ago. Not a lot has changed. The things that we would reflect on when we come to consider dividend at the end of this year, the full year 19 dividend, is, as you mentioned, the ECB's recommendation. Currently, the ECB is recommending banks in Europe not to pay dividends. Uh, We'll also reflect on the economy, the state of our business uh, and the outlook. Uh, so, So while we see the prospect of vaccine economic recovery is hopeful, we're still living in uncertain times. So will they weigh those up to ensure that the bank stays strong and resilient through these uncertain times? Clifford, good morning to you, my friend. Look, I, I want to get this point off my chest as well. You talk about the demand for loans and sluggish and how excited you are if they increase uh, economic activity and the NIMS can improve as well. There's nothing wrong with loan demand in Europe at a government level, at a household level, at a non-financial corporate level. On the last one, for instance, 114% debt to GDP as opposed to 108% a year earlier. Uh, on households, 605 in the euro area versus 57.7. Loan demand is going up precipitously. It worries 
worries me that more people who don't need finance uh, are being encouraged to go and get finance. And those that do need finance, quite frankly, some of their balance sheets look awful, Clifford. Mm. I think you've got to look at different segments, different countries, different economies, frankly. So there's a quite a wide range uh, across Europe. So in our home market in the Netherlands, um, there's quite a lot of mortgage debt out there. Uh, but, but there's also quite some uh, real estate value to back it up. So we lend cautiously to the consumer. The consumer market here is pretty prudent. I think our, the point I was making earlier was around the corporate sector. And so we've seen demand for loans from corporates actually quite uh, muted in the Netherlands and our core markets in Northwest Europe. And I think that's, that's different from some other uh, markets in Europe uh, and globally, uh, where you've seen very, very strong demand, for example, guarantee, government guaranteed loans. Here in our core markets in Northwest Europe, actually, uh, demand for government guaranteed loans has been relatively modest uh, because uh, the, the, uh, the corporates are well funded and they're concerned about low demand. So I think as demand improves, you'll see that lending Clifford. volume pick up. Clifford, I know about Dutch prudence and I know about German prudence as well. I, I, it's something that a shoe dropped many years ago. But the fact of the matter is you've got to look at it as a euro area project now as well, because when, when the problems hip happen in southern Europe, they will affect the entire continent as well. Isn't this just another indictment of the failure of CMU and the failure of, of Europe to organise itself properly on, on, a, on, a, on a, 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 a demographic across the whole of the EU and across the whole of the eurozone? Yeah, well, uh, I'm here as a CFO of a bank. You know, we operate within within the rules, within the political structures. Uh, I think these are good points, perhaps, to put to some other folks. Uh, from from where I sit, we are operating the bank prudently. We're serving our clients. We're supporting them through the pandemic, and we support our clients, both corporate and retail, if we think they can take on extra debt uh, prudently to run their business. And and we I think we think it's important to support all our clients through this period of uncertainty. Now, clearly, there may be bigger macroeconomic issues to sort out, but I'm, uh, that's, uh, that's a longer-term project for now, in my view. Uh, Clifford, I want to ask you about one of the lines that you had about the acceleration of high-volume processes to be digitised uh, by the uh, 2024 timeframe. We've heard a lot more about digital acceleration during this crisis that anyone who has been looking at some of these technology solutions has sped up that process. Has that happened in this case, or were you always, always expecting that? I think that's quite right. I mean, our core market here in the Netherlands, but also neighbouring markets are really quite advanced digitally and materially more advanced than, for example, the UK. Uh, we have fewer branches and many of our clients use video banking to take out mortgages, for example. So the way the consumer interacts with the bank has and will get more digital. Uh, we see more opportunity for that, but we also see opportunity to digitize the bank. So our processes internally, and that's the figure that you were referring to. We do a lot of straight through processing for our core uh, processes, but we want to really increase that so that we can focus on operating ourselves efficiently and have our people talking to our clients to solve their problems. So we see quite some opportunity there. And that's part of the reason why we've announced additional cost savings of 700 million euros today to be implemented through 2024. All right, Clifford, I think this is our last chance to talk to you about ABN AMRO. Maybe not. Maybe we'll get one more next year. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.